Welcome to The Market Tech, a podcast series where leadership and product marketing intersect. The Market Tech is for and about the world's best product marketing leaders and the chief marketing officers that own the function. Today, we're going to cover positioning versus messaging and why, quite frankly, positioning is so crucial to winning. It's my pleasure to introduce you to my guest co-host, Jen Steele, Chief Marketing Officer of Reprise and the legendary positioning expert, April Dunford. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. And, and, and April, this is, uh, you've been very kind with us uh, from a timing perspective. You are our first speaker, April 22nd, in April, actually, April and April. Uh, 2016, and uh, yet you continue to uh, show us the love, much appreciated, but people still need to understand positioning and the difference between messaging. And so, you know, we've all been in the situation before where you join a company as their product marketing lead and the CMO or the CEO or CRO says, we need to improve our positioning. And you sit there and you're wondering, where do I even start? So, but before we begin the where to start part, let's Let's get to the basics. April, what is positioning? Why is it deeply misunderstood? And how is it different from messaging? Yeah. So th- this is a question I get a lot. And and at the beginning, this used to really bug me, you know, because I'm the positioning expert and people are like, oh, you're an expert on this thing. We don't actually know what it is. <laughs> And so I think usually when I talk about positioning, I tend to have to talk a bit about what positioning is not because people have such misconceptions about it. So often people will say, oh, I know what positioning is. It's messaging. Same thing as messaging. I'm like, no. Or they'll say, oh, it's just like coming up with a tagline. I get that one a lot. Or my personal pet peeve is people talk about brand positioning, um, which really bugs me because I think there's positioning and there's branding, but those two things are actually really distinct. In fact, positioning, I think, is often confused with things that we do with positioning once we have it. My definition of positioning goes like this. Positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at delivering some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful. Um, When I'm dealing with folks that don't come from a marketing background, I tend to describe it as it's like context setting for products. And context is kind of important because it's how we make sense out of things, particularly new things that we haven't encountered before. So we'll look for clues in the context. You can think of it a bit like the opening scene of a movie where you walk into the movie theater and you have all these big questions like, where are we? Who are these people? What time frame is this? What's going on? How should I feel? The first couple of minutes in the movie kind of establishes, you know, here's where we are. This is the time frame. This is what's going on. And then once you get those big questions answered, you can kind of relax and settle into the details of the story. So that's kind of the way I think about positioning. Brilliant. And so it's not a tagline. It's not your brand. Um, it's it's the context setting for your product. And, and, and just another clarification, April, what's the difference between positioning versus strategy versus vision for a company? Yeah, these are really different things in my mind. But I do often get into conversations about this sort of vision versus positioning or strategy versus positioning. 
I kind of think of it this way. So you've got the vision for your company and the vision is often way out in the future. Like it's five years in the future, 10 years in the future. It's what we want to be when we grow up, right? Like here's, here's where we're going. For most startups, if we look at their investor pitch, the investor pitch is very oriented around that vision of where the company is going to be ultimately you know, when they're big five years in the future, 10 years in the future. And then you've got what we've got right now, <laughs> which tends to be something really different. So I have a product right now. It, it serves a market right now. I have customers that are a good fit for the product right now. And those two things tend to be really different. Like where we think the product's going to be way, way in the future is not the same as what the product is right now. Then we've got the strategy and the strategy is kind of like, the steps we're going to go through to get from where we are right now to the ultimate vision of where we want to be. And at each of those steps, we have distinct positioning, which is the positioning of how we're going to market and sell and win with the product we have at that particular moment in the market that we're competing in in that moment. So if I give you an example, um, early in my career, I worked at a company and we were positioned as CRM for investment banks, but that's not what we sold the VCs, like because CRM for investment banks sounds a little niche. What we sold the VCs was we were going to be CRM for enterprise, like any big enterprise, you know, which was a massive addressable market. And we were going to go get the entire market. But the product that we had right now, it didn't have everything that it would need to have to win in that big, broad market, but we won very, very well in the investment banking market. So the way we drew the picture is we said, well, step one, we're going to go win in the investment banking market because we have a couple of um, distinct features there. We can really win in that market. We can really serve that market. We're highly differentiated and more valuable than the big competitors, and we can win in that market. Once we've won in investment banking, then the plan was we would use our foothold in investment banking to help us cross over to retail banking. And at that point, we would adjust the positioning and we would then be CRM for banking, not investment banking, but banking. So that was like step two on the strategy. Then step three would be, well, once we've got banking, then we could, there's actually quite a bit of overlap between banking and insurance. So we would use banking to sort of step off into the insurance market. At that point, we would expand the positioning and we would be CRM for financial services. And then the plan was, well, you know, if we're killing it in banking and insurance, like that's massive. And if we're doing a good job there, then we then our next step would be CRM for enterprise. And that's how we're going to do it. So most folks get confused about these things because they have this idea that we're going to take this positioning, we're going to carve it in stone. And that's going to be the positioning that has to that has to serve us for the next 10 years. And that's just wrong for a bunch of reasons. One is, you know, your positioning is constantly going to be adjusted or changing or not, depending on what's happening with, you know, your product, first of all, where you're adding features to the product, maybe you're going to do acquisitions. So your product itself is changing. The market's changing because your competitors aren't just sitting out there doing nothing. They're also adding to their product. They're doing acquisitions. They're doing things. And then the buyers of your product are changing. And sometimes there's big things happening that's changing their purchase priorities or what it is they want to get done. 
So positioning is actually a living, breathing thing that you should be checking in on year after year. And most companies have a longer term vision where the positioning is going to be something that's quite different from what the positioning is today. And your strategy sort of sets out what the steps are that you're going to take from where you are today to where you ultimately want to be in the future. Oh, brilliant. Position so, for today, strategy, how to get to the vision that you set for the next three years, five years, 10 years, whatever. I absolutely love that. Thank you, April. I will admit, however, that I'm feeling horrendously guilty about the number of positioning statements that I have made my executive team <laughs> go through. Um, you're, say, you're saying that's not the way to go? <laughs> I did a lot of those too. Um, well, you know, the thing about positioning that's that's that I find, at least the beginning of my career, I found really frustrating is, you know, you learn about positioning, you read about positioning. If you understand what it's all about, you get how valuable it is. And yet we do not have great tools at our disposal for actually doing it. So I found the positioning statement was the most frustrating thing because, you know, when I was taking marketing courses later in my career, um, you know, this thing kept coming up and it was like, okay, we've got this mad libs fill in the blank statement, you know, we are a this that does this blah, blah, blah. But when you get deep into this stuff, the first thing you realize is that the blanks in that positioning statement, there isn't a good methodology to come up with the answer that you write in the blank. So for example, you know, most positioning statements have a blank in there for market category, but my experience is that most products I've worked on could be positioned in multiple market categories. So how do I know what the best answer is? And so for a while, I thought, well, posi the positioning statement isn't even a, it's not an exercise to figure out your positioning. It's just a way to write your positioning down, but it doesn't even work well for that because, you know, you write it down and there isn't enough detail there to really give anybody on your team the detail they need to actually go do something with your positioning. So I didn't even think it was a good way to write it down. So anyways, I found that really frustrating. The other thing, the positioning statement, like I actually came to a point where I decided, not only was the positioning statement not good for anything, it was also potentially harmful <laughs> because, oh because it tricked you into thinking that this was easy. And the first thing that popped in your mind, you just write that down in a little blank and that's it, you're done. And nothing could be further from the truth. Like this stuff is actually really, really hard to figure out. So I think people are doing a positioning statement because they don't have any other way to do it. Like we, we don't have a lot of good tools out there to do this stuff. So my work has been really focused on the practicalities of that. Like, you know, if we recognize that positioning is important, we recognize that maybe our positioning is bad. How do we actually work through it and get to something that's better? That's been kind of my fundamental thing I've been working on for the last like 10 years. Also, I'd love to hear more about that since you've taken my only tool away from me now, uh, <laughs> that being a positioning statement. <laughs> how in the world? Did, okay, so now I'm floundering. What? How do we find? How do we? How do we know what to do? Yeah. So here's here's how I reasoned it out. So I'll 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 take you through my thought process. So first, I got this positioning statement, and then I get to this point where I'm like darn it, this thing is useless. <laughs> I can't use it for anything. So I'm like, well, how would we do it? You know, and at this point I had repositioned a bunch of products. So I thought, well, I've done this a bunch. Maybe I could figure out how to do this. So the way I approached it is I said, well, could we take positioning, break it down into its component piece parts, solve for the piece parts, 
and then smash it together and voila, good positioning. That was kind of my way of thinking about it. So I started with this, can we break it down into pieces? And it turned out breaking it into pieces pretty easy because we kind of more or less agree on what the component pieces are and they're more or less the blanks in the positioning statement. So that's the only thing the positioning statement was good for is kind of pointing out what was important. Now, you know, there's complications and then everybody's positioning statement is slightly different. But if you do a review of them all and you have a look at it, more or less, you settle in on five component pieces of positioning. So the first one is uh, competitors or competitive alternatives. The second one is differentiated capabilities or features. Third one is differentiated value, like what can you deliver that the other alternatives can't in terms of value for a business. Um, and then there's target customers. So what's your definition of a best fit customer? And then the last one's market category. Like, are you email? Are you chat? Are you database or business intelligence tool? So those are the five component pieces. So the way I looked at it is I said, well, okay, we have these five component pieces. My problem with the positioning statement was it didn't tell me how to, how to get the best answer for those. So I said, well, now I'm going to break it into these five pieces. And all I got to do is figure out how to get the best answer for the five things. And then we're going to smash it together and voila, good positioning. When you look at it like that, the first thing that, that you realize that that darn positioning statement didn't give you any clues about was that the five component pieces are actually all related to each other. They are not independent. If I take any of the five, let's take differentiated value. The value that my product can deliver for customers, like where does that differentiated value come from? Like we don't get to just make it up. Where does it come from? It comes from my differentiated capabilities. So those two things are tied. Like I can't figure out one without the other. Mm -hmm. And then when I think about it, well, what's a differentiated capability? Well, it's only differentiated if I know what I'm differentiating it against. So I need to understand what the competitive alternatives are in order to figure out what my differentiated capabilities are. So those three things are actually really tied. I can't figure them out independently. And then even when I go to uh, best fit customers, my definition of a best fit customer is... You know, who's the best fit customer? Well, they're the customers that really, really care a lot about the value that only I can deliver. That's what makes them a best fit customer. So value and customer segments, those are tied. And then the last one's market category, and it's a little esoteric, but if you think about it, if I think of market category as context setting for a product, then my best market category is the category I position my product in such that the value I can deliver is kind of obvious to the customers I'm trying to communicate it to. So I can't really assess whether my market category is good or bad if I don't understand differentiated value and target best fit customers. So now we're in trouble. I got five things, but they all relate to each other, but it's like a big circle. Where do I start? And for two years, I decided there was no good starting point. Like you actually just, you, you picked a starting point, you worked your way around the circle, figure out the other things. Then you got candidate positioning. You take it out to the market, test it. If it works great, you run with it. If it doesn't, 
you go back and go around the circle again. And so that sucks for a lot of reasons. Like it's, it's great if you get it right the first time, then you go run with it. But if you get it wrong, then you got to go back to the CEO and go, oh yeah, yeah, I know we spent three months testing that positioning, but now we're going back to do it again. And you know, it's a good way to get fired. Um, so how I eventually bust out of that was, is a long story, but the short version is I got really into jobs theory and jobs to be done and Clayton Christensen. And the epiphany I had after looking at all that stuff is we have to start with competitive alternatives. If we don't start there, we run the risk of having positioning that sounds good in the office, but it doesn't work in the market because it's insufficiently differentiated from the other options that customers have. So you actually got to go what are my competitive alternatives? Like if I didn't exist, what would a customer do? And then I can say, okay, well, what have I got that they don't have? That's my differentiated capabilities. I can then take those capabilities, map them to value by going down the list and going, so what? I got this feature, so what for a customer? And when you do that, it tends to kind of theme out into two or three value buckets. So now I've got differentiated value and then once I've got that, I can say, okay, I could go sell this to anybody, but what are the characteristics of a target account that make them really care a lot about the value that I alone can deliver? This is how I'm going to define a best fit customer. And then once I've got that, then I can look at market category and say, well, what are my options for the market category and which one is the context I could position the product in that makes this differentiated value kind of obvious to these people. So that's my super long-winded answer, but that's what, <laughs> that's what I got to in the end and how I got to it. And I'll caveat all of that by saying, does that work for B2C? I don't know. I'm B2B. So I, you know, all bets are off if you're talking about consumer stuff. Um, but if it's B2B and a considered purchase, you know, I've probably run this methodology with uh, 200 companies now. And so I feel pretty confident that it works if you're B2B tech, I know how to do this. Right, right. It's so the differentiation really hit home. I just was at a conference where I think most of the booths did the exact same thing. Now, maybe they didn't, but it looked like they did from what they said on the booths. right. And it's so hard, right? Like our markets are so crowded. There's like, there's a million other companies out there doing what we do. And, and you know, if we really take a step back and like, think about customers, like how do customers figure this stuff out? (laughs) Like, you know, they're out there and they're like, everybody's saying the same thing and they're all saying the same stuff and everybody looks like they're doing the same thing. Like, how does a customer make a short list? So April, uh, thank you for that. The, there's five components Understood. Each is cascades into the other. They are very dependent on each other as it relates to start with your competition, understand your features and capabilities, understand your differentiated value, then understand you know who your best fit customers are and what segments you choose to serve. Uh, finally, the market category piece. If we get all that right and we get all that analysis right, you know, we spend a lot of time on that. And then we seem to limp to the finish line with the most important part, which is the implementation of this. If you have this beautifully uh, laid out in a nice deck in a, in a PowerPoint, then what? Like, so, you know, well, changing the positioning, it, it's, it's, it's a big change for an organization. Can you share a few tips on, you know, bringing this new positioning to life? Uh, in a holistic manner, both internally, internally of the organization, and then thereafter externally. So this is actually 
super important. And there's a, there's a bunch of things that go into it. So the first one is, I really strongly believe that positioning is a team sport. This is not a, a little exercise that happens in the confines of the marketing department. If it does, it'll never get accepted in the company. So hey, I've lived that. Hold on. Right. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) To be honest. In particular, like positioning that the marketing department cooks up on their own. If you then try to throw it over the transom to sales, sales will simply ignore it. And that is almost universally true. Like it is really hard to convince a sales team to adopt positioning that they don't really understand. And they will not understand it if they were not involved in creating it. The other part that you've got is is over on the product and engineering side, we've got the same problem there. Like those folks, uh, you know, if we're cooking up this positioning, they'll just kind of see it as like, well, this is like a marketing thing, you know, for like campaigns or something, but that really has nothing to do with what we're doing over here on the product side of the thing. Uh, But but in fact, it does actually often impact what you're doing in product quite a bit. So again, you can't get those folks on board. They are not going to understand it if they were not involved in doing it. And then you've got, you know, the elephant in the room is like usually the founder, the CEO, whatever, like, (laughs) you know, I can't just unilaterally make a decision like, Hey, I know we're database people and we've always been selling a database, but I'm repositioning this as a business intelligence tool. Okay. <laughs> so like the founder's going to have something to say about that. Right. So- I, I actually made my CEO and co-founder read your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this is the thing. So I think if we really want to do this, the first thing we got to do is we got to get everybody at the table. So ideally, I've got marketing, sales, product, customer success, the executive team at the table. So that's number one. And then number two, if we're going to go do this positioning, we can't just get everybody together in the room and then say, why does everybody love our stuff, right? (laughs) We're just going to have a big fight. And guess who loses that fight every time? Marketing. Marketing never Mm -hmm. wins that fight. That The sales wins the fight sometimes, uh, but usually, you know, the founder wins the fight and that's it. And and then we just keep positioning the way we've always positioned it. So we got to get everybody together in the room, but what we need is a methodology for us to work through as a team that as much as we can takes the opinions out of it. Part of working through this step-by-step positioning methodology, the way we do it is we can start by looking at competitive alternatives. And that's kind of is what it is. Like if I've got salespeople in the room, like salespeople know who we compete with. They know what the status quo is in the account. They know who else we compete with on a short list. So we kind of start with something that isn't too contentious. (laughs) We say, look, (laughs) like, you know, here we are, like, who do we compete with? You know, and surprisingly is kind of contentious because product people are usually looking at horizon competitors that maybe sales doesn't actually see in a deal yet. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't have to position against them if customers don't know about them. So, you know, we'll have, we have to have that conversation. If you go to sales and you say, who's our competition, they never say status quo. Like they call that losing to no decision, but what it really means is lost to Excel. Right. But (laughs) So we, so we have to have that conversation, but, but this is a pretty easy conversation and the folks in the room know the answer to this, right? So if right. we can all get everybody in agreement, okay, this is the stake in the ground. This is what I got to beat in order to win a deal. 
Now we can have a conversation about differentiated capabilities. And that also kind of is what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's not too much opinion about that. And then we translate to value and you get to a really different point than you would have got to if it was just like, let's get everybody together in the room and say, why does everyone love us so much? You know, that's, <laughs> you get something really different. So if we're doing this in a systematic step-by-step -step way, we, we get really focused on differentiation instead of just why does everyone love us, which will include a whole bunch of things that aren't differentiating at all. If we start right. with who do we got to beat? How are we different? Now let's go to value. Then that actually gets us really focused on differentiation. So step one, we got to get everybody together. Step two, we got to go through a process. Then when we go to roll this thing out, we can't just stop at the five piece parts. Like once we've get everybody the cross-functional team aligned on the positioning piece parts, like here's what we compete against. Here's how we're different. This is the value we can deliver. No one else can. Here's the customers we're going after. This is the market we're going to win. In order for everybody in that room to then go take that positioning and communicate it back to their teams, we really have to be able to take this positioning and turn it into a story mm. that's easy for people to communicate. So in the stuff I do with companies, we don't stop there. We get there and then we translate it into a narrative. And you can think of this as a sales narrative because, you know, like I said in the earlier thing, this isn't the narrative about division. This isn't the narrative about the strategy. This is the narrative that tells the story of here's why we win right now with the thing we've got right now. And so the way we do it is we'll, we'll take the positioning, we'll map that positioning into a sales narrative, and then we'll take that sales narrative and test it with actual prospects to make sure that it works, because that's what it is, is a sales pitch. Once right. we're feeling good that it works, then we can roll it out and then we can work on you know messaging and all the rest of it and make sure the marketing stuff lines up with that. But the sales narrative also serves the purpose of everybody on the product team, customer success, whatever, can go back to their respective teams and tell the story of here's how we win in the market today. That makes so much sense to me. I've managed sales teams in the past and hmm. I do find them to be a very effective testing ground. Like it's kind of hard to test positioning in other ways, right? Because, right. you know, what we want to do is we wish we could test positioning by doing A-B testing on landing pages. And, and that just doesn't work for a lot of reasons, right? One is now I'm taking the positioning, I'm turning it into messaging and I'm putting it on a landing page. So if it fails, did it fail because my messaging was crap or my landing page design was crap or I don't have the right traffic coming to this landing page? If I test it in sales, then I can control for a lot of stuff. Like I know I've got a qualified prospect. I can sit in the room and see how the rep is pitching it. So I can kind of control for like just poor salesmanship. Right. <laughs> get, and, and you've got a lot of wiggle room to kind of have a discussion with a customer to really get the, the positioning across, even if the words aren't perfect yet. Mm -hmm. um, so, we're, so we're not testing copy you know, we're actually testing the positioning at more of a conceptual level, which is what we want to do. But the only way yes. to really do that is, you know, in sales, I think. Right. And we can hear and see and feel actually what the prospect is thinking, because now we record all the calls. Exactly. Right. You can see where they're getting excited. You can see where they're getting confused. You know, like it's, you get so much more signal then yeah, like A-B testing a landing page where I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> like, I don't right, get to see right. you. I don't get to see you squishing your brow at me going, what the, <laughs> what is that thing, you know? Or I can't see you if you're getting excited. 
Yeah. So I really think there's no good substitution for, you know, building a building a, a pitch and then taking it out and let's pitch it on some prospects and see how it works. Right, right. That sounds amazing to me. Um, we're doing some of that now, although not all of it, which will change very rapidly now. So I'd love to know mm. common traps, right? So I've, I've listened to you. I'm getting everybody in a room. I'm testing messaging with sales. But what are the pitfalls you see? Because you've done this with so many other people. Yeah, like there's a, there's a ton. So the big one is people will try to do this. They don't have the right people in the room. So, you know, they'll say, oh, we got everyone in the room. We just didn't get the founder. And then the founder doesn't buy in and the founder unrolls it the minute you try to roll it out. Like this is super common. Or, you know, we, you know, we, couldn't, get, we couldn't get sales to be in the room, but everybody else was there. You know, it's like, yeah, well, good luck having sales adopt any of that. But <laughs> like, so you really got to get the people in the room. Um, not only do you have to get the people in the room, you got to get, generally you have to get the CEO to, to be bought in to doing the process. Mm -hmm. So if the CEO comes in and is kind of like, this is stupid and I don't even know why we're doing this, blah, blah, blah. Everybody in the room is going to catch that vibe and folks aren't going to take it seriously. So generally we need the CEO to be the sponsor of the exercise, even though they're not going to be the facilitator, but they need to, you know, they need to come and kick off the thing and say, look, this is really important. We need to dedicate the next couple of days to this. We're going to focus on this. And we all, you know, we got to kind of keep our minds open to, you know, maybe this positioning turns out to be a little bit different than what we thought it was, but that's okay. So, so that's a big thing is having, you know, the most senior person in the room being very bought into the process and, you know, potentially there's going to be some changes out of that. Right. And then on the execution side, there's a real, like, like the existing positioning for a lot of companies, the existing positioning has gravity. Mm -hmm. And so changing that is going to require a, a dedicated concerted effort across teams to do it. So again, I think the key here is cross-functional collaboration. It's marketing, working with product, working with sales to make sure that we get this thing over the finish line. So, you know, we can't just, you know, if, if we're going to change the sales pitch deck, we need to do that right away. And it needs to be marketing and sales working together. And then marketing and sales needs to test it together and do that carefully. So uh, I'll give you one of the biggest mistakes that people make is marketing will build the new pitch deck. They'll throw it over to sales. Everybody gets the new pitch deck. Nobody really understands it. The salespeople are very, very comfortable with the old pitch deck. So, you know, they're used to doing it. It's all good. They get the new pitch deck. It's awkward. It's new, whatever. And they'll try it a couple of times and then they'll just come back and say, no, it didn't work. It didn't work. The old, the old pitch is way easier to sell. Right. And so the way I do this or the way I used to do it when I was inside companies and what I recommend to companies that I work with now is we have the head of sales in the meeting when we're working through the positioning and therefore they buy into the positioning where we get to at the end. And then marketing and sales are going to work together on building the pitch deck and then when we test the pitch deck, we're not going to throw it out to like every single salesperson. We are going to pick one salesperson and ideally our best salesperson. We're going to bring that person in and we're going to train the crap out of them. So we're going to get them really comfortable with the pitch. They're going to pitch us a whole bunch of times and get really comfortable with it. And then we're going to make that salesperson 
do a whole bunch of sales calls with qualified prospects on it. Not the rest of the team. We're going to leave the rest of the team alone. But I got one salesperson doing that. And after every one of those sales pitches, we're huddling marketing and sales together on what worked and didn't work in that pitch. And we're adjusting it. And the idea is we're going to keep doing that until we got a pitch that that salesperson is comfortable with. And usually what happens is we're spending so much time getting that one salesperson comfortable with it. After we've done five or six pitches, the salesperson is like, okay, I got it. It's good. We're fine. We don't need to keep testing this anymore. It's good. And importantly, they're like, I'm not going back to the old sales pitch. I like this one better. If I can get my best sales rep to that, then what I do is then I can say, okay, best sales rep, you go train everybody else. <laughs> so now I got sales training sales. We can record that rep doing their pitch that is excellent at this point. And I got sales training sales and I've got my best sales rep going out and saying, this thing really works. I've done it with this, co this company, this company, this company. Y'all should give it a shot. And that works a million times better than marketing going over and saying, hey, we got this new deck, you know. And <laughs> yes. <Forget it. laughs> yes, that is very timely, very timely um, advice, at least in my case. April. Well, that's the big one. If you can't get sales to adopt it, all of this is for nothing. Definitely want to keep sales happy. That's for sure. And uh, <laughs> April, last question for the podcast. I, I know there's a lot of clients out there that uh, that need you desperately to, to position to win. So we're going to let you go. But last question for the day. If we go back to the five components, component number five, choosing your best market frame of reference. You know, mm -hmm. once we know what makes our solution awesome and, and who cares the most, we need to choose a market frame of reference that makes our as you would say, awesomeness, completely obvious, mm -hmm. uh, to borrow a phrase from your book. How do we figure out what is the market frame of reference that makes our unique value utterly obvious to our best prospects? Yeah, so market category is sort of an interesting one, right? Like if you think about it, I like to think about it this way. What is the job of a market category? So the job of a market category is to take a customer that doesn't know too much about your stuff, it picks them up and it puts them on a road that points towards your stuff, right? And importantly, it does not pick them up and place them on a road that leads somewhere else. <laughs> because then the marketing and sales is going to have to say, no, no, we're not that. No, no, no. Come back over here. No, 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 no. Over here. We're, we're one of these, right? So if you think about it, market category does not replace your messaging. It does not replace your sales pitch. It almost never, in fact, I would say never stands alone. Like you don't just have a web page that says, you know, we're email for lawyers. Like you have your tagline, you have your value proposition. So all your market category does, like a great market category serves as a really good starting point. It kind of gets people where they're like, yeah, I kind of, maybe I kind of, yeah, okay, tell me more right? It's that. That's all it does. So when we look at market category, generally we've got the val we've got the differentiated value. We've got the target best fit customers. And then we'll look at it and say, well, okay, let's look at the existing market category your position is. Does that actually point customers towards your value or does it point them somewhere else? And a lot of times companies have never actually thought about this, right? Like they're like, well, we're a database. You know, what else could we be? We've always been, we're database people, make it a database. What else could we be? But, you know, but then when you look at all the value, all the value is like analytics. And you're like, well, if all the value is analytics, why aren't you a data warehouse? 
or why aren't you something else, right? Like, so, so usually what we do is we'll look at it and say like, does the existing category work? If it doesn't, it's usually kind of obvious. It's like, you know, what assumptions does this category trigger in the minds of customers? And if it's not triggering the right assumptions or it's triggering assumptions completely wrong, well, then that's a bad market market category. We should throw it out and try something else. <laughs> and then usually what we can do is we can look at the adjacent market categories. Sometimes there's something obvious there where it's like, okay, well, it's not email, it's team collaboration, or it's not email, it's chat, or, you know, it's not a robot, it's a self-driving car, it's not a database, it's a business intelligence tool. So usually we can look at the adjacent market categories and think, well, maybe there's a way to position there. And then if, if none of those work, and what we've got is truly something really brand new and emerging and, and positioning it in any existing category would actually undersell what it does, then I think we're going to have to take a step back and look at, okay, well, can we create a new market category? If we're creating a new market category, what are the, the, the concepts or the ideas that we need to trigger in the prospect's mind to get them oriented in the right direction? So that's usually how we do it in the workshops I do. Brilliant. And that helps you differentiate at the end of the day. Well, listen, this has been um, a treasure trove of insights. Quite frankly, there's three I take away very, very quickly. Positioning is not a tagline. So it is not a tagline. Uh, positioning is not your vision, if you will. And uh, that's your, your you know, end state three, five, 10 years down the road. As you're crafting the positioning uh, or repositioning your organization, bring the right parties to the table from the onset, including the product folks, the sales folks, your leaders and your revenue team, and use the framework, just so happens you have one, uh, that allows you to tackle <laughs> like this in a disciplined way starting with your competitors and then going all the way down to what we just discussed, which is your, you know, finding that best market frame of reference uh, that differentiates you enough to, so that your value stands out and points to you. Thank you, April. Thank you, Jen. This has been very enlightening. Appreciate you both spending time with us and sharing your insights with the product marketing community. Have a lovely, lovely day. Thanks so much.